Well, welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. And today I've got a fantastic interview with Dr. Becca Tarnas. Before we get there, let me introduce a few ideas and then we'll uh, circle up on who she is and then get to the interview. So first, I'd like to say that the Center for Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative wellness center that my wife and I started about a decade ago, we're moving into some new territories. So we're starting a membership model online educational resource, and we're going to be building that out for the next three months. So be looking for some information about what's happening at the center. The Sacred Speaks is going to be involved in this. There's going to be a lot of information, clips, classes that are put together through the um, interviews that I've been having over the last six years and all kinds of other content from psychotherapists, clinicians, acupuncturists, and the like. So be looking for that. Check us out at thecenterforhas.com, and it's going to be very exciting. Uh, Full rollout will be in March, but we're looking to do some early release uh, to some special folks that are interested in February. So let us know if you're interested. Uh, Check us out at the center. Uh, of course, TikTok. I started doing a TikTok page, which is wild. It's, it's such a wild experience, the world of TikTok. And, uh, and follow it. It, it. It's really kind of a peek in the process. And what I'm doing right now is, is an exploration of all the various shadowy emotions that we experience. And it sounds a little more like my, my kind of psychotherapeutic hat is on through that project. But really, I'm, I'm exploring Jungian theory and diving into random ideas. And it gives me a, a place to pay attention to my day on purpose <laughs> with some real intentionality and to speak to um, aspects of confusion uh, and provide clarity and, uh, and just kind of um, understand uh, some complexities like shame um, and the shadow and the archetypes. Um, so I'm talking about all this stuff. Check it out on TikTok. Of course, Instagram is really for information and updates on the process that I'm involved in here. Check that out on Instagram as well. Uh, the Young Center Houston, I'm, I'm the vice president of the board there. It's very dear to my heart, and so we're doing some amazing things, younghouston.org. Uh, on top of, um, yeah, we've, we've got some great stuff coming up. Okay, Becca Tarnas, check her out at Becca, B-E-C-C-A, Tarnas, T-A-R-N-A-S.com. I want to read her bio. Becca is a scholar, artist, counseling astrologer, and editor for RKE, the Journal of Archetypal Cosmology. She received a PhD in philosophy and religion at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Her dissertation, which we talk about today, is titled The Back of Beyond, The Red Books of C.G. Jung and J.R.R. Tolkien. She now teaches at Pacifica Graduate Institute and CIIS, as well as several other online educational platforms. And she's published one book thus far titled Journey to the Imaginal Realm, A Reader's Guide to J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. She lives in Big Sur. Our first home was in Big Sur, which was always the inspiration. Educated at San Francisco Waldorf School, uh, pursuing environmental studies, theater arts, uh, and returned to the Bay Area to get a master's in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at CIIS, and now lives in Sierra Nevada, foothills of California, to be closer to the natural world. Research interests include depth psychology, archetypal studies, literature, philosophy, and the, uh, the ecological imagination. On this website, she provides a, a, a ton of content, YouTube videos, access to articles, so check her out. Thanks, Becca, for the conversation. I really enjoyed getting to know you. I, I reached out. I've been thinking about this conversation for about three or four years when I saw her dissertation defense online on YouTube, and I thought, wow, Tolkien and Jung, yes, please, and it didn't disappoint. So, Becca, thank you for your time, 
And also, next episode will be Lisa Marciano. Her book, The Vital Spark, is coming out in February, and I'm really enjoying it. It's, um, yeah, let me, let me find her real quick. It's Lisa Marciano, Reclaim Your Outlaw Energies and Find Your Feminine Fire. It's, it, it's a, an incredible read, so I'm looking forward to chatting with her next week, and the episode will be out in about two weeks. So for now, I think that's it. We'll leave it there. Enjoy the episode. Becca Tarnas, as we were just talking, I have been on the hunt to chat with you for quite a long time now, and I've read your dissertation, The Back of Beyond, the Red Books of C.G. Jung and J.R.R. Tolkien, and, uh, and I'm excited to chat about all things that are related to the imagination and psychedelics and, uh, and whatnot. So thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Good. Me too. And so I want to talk about your process to start out uh, integrating this work of the Red Books, Tolkien and Jung, um, and also how you drew from figures like Jung, Hellman, and Corbin. And if we could just set up your understanding of the imagination, you know, drawing from all these different wells, um, but looking at your process of how you synthesized all this material in the first place. Launch Absolutely. <laughs> there, there's a long story behind that. So I'll do a condensed version, but the whole thesis began when the Red Book was published in 2009. And I was near the end of my undergrad degree at Mount Holyoke at the time. And I knew very little about yeah. Jung, but my father, Richard Tarnas, was very interested in Jung. I knew he spoke for Jung societies and I thought, well, he'll like this book. <laughs> and that was my way, I think, of redirecting a sense of connection that I immediately felt to Jung's Red Book when it was published. Mm -hmm. And part of that connection was inspired because I was an avid explorer of Middle Earth, Tolkien's world <laughs> that he writes about in The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion. And within the context of his writings, all of those stories of Middle Earth are written down in a big red book that's called the Red Book of Westmarch. And so I knew that and I had that name, the Red Book, in the back of my mind when I first encountered Jung's Red Book. And I think the New York Times had done this big spread on it when it was published. And so it just caught my attention. There's a red book and a red book. And several years passed before I did anything with that intuition. But when I was in graduate school, I did start studying Jung and James Hillman. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien had even been included in one of my graduate classes. And I realized that I could start studying this at a graduate level. And so I thought, what if there's more? What if there's more than just this odd coincidence of these two books being called the Red Book? And I began to delve into it. And what I found was that not only were there parallels in terms of the name, but also parallels in the timing between Tolkien's earliest stories of Middle Earth and these amazing drawings he was doing in mm. a book, a sketchbook he called the Book of Ishness, 
and Jung's Red Book period, the, pretty much the exact same years that that was overlapping in terms of their creative periods. And then there was the similarity in terms of the figures who were emerging, the images, the style of drawing mm. they were doing, some of the scenes that were taking place. And what began as a curiosity and then an independent study and then something I thought I would include in my dissertation eventually became my entire doctoral dissertation. And, um, and so it became a process of very meticulously comparing everything within Jung's Red Book and all the surrounding biographical material and everything in Tolkien's Legendarium of Middle-earth. And I was amazed with how much I found out. I put all the best parallels in my dissertation, but there are still ones that I haven't written up. I'm teaching a course, the first time I've gotten to teach a course on this material this semester, and hmm. the students are seeing things that I hadn't seen. I'm getting to share with them parallels that were too subtle to write out in the dissertation. So it's a study that just keeps on giving. And uh, I've been amazed by the uh, the mirror image of these two red books. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, so what, when I say the word imagination or imaginal, what does that mean to you? And it, it just seems like so often people need a lot of priming of the pump to even begin to trust what is going on in their interior space. So what, what comes to mind around imagination and how does it begin to animate or illuminate life differently once you have a devoted practice to attending to that? I've been immensely influenced in this area, not only by Jung and Tolkien, certainly, but as you brought up James Hillman, Henri Corbin, mm -hmm. and their ways of defining the imagination. Henri Corbin speaks about um, what he calls the imaginal versus the imaginary. And that's such an important distinction for us to make in a modern disenchanted worldview, because that disenchanted perspective looks at the imagination, which brings up images, fantasy, the world of dreams and so forth, it looks at it and says, that's not real. It's just a dream. It's only your imagination. Uh, it, it was merely a fantasy. And hmm. notice those words that we use to throw out the reality of those things. It's not that fantasy or dream or imagination in themselves indicate that sense of unreality, superficiality that can be so easily dismissed. It's those modifying words that we put in front of them that in some ways betrays a worldview that doesn't see the imagination as a capacity that is important. And Corbin makes this wonderful distinction between the imaginary which is what is just made up. Because of course we do just make things up. That's also a human capacity, but it's a bit more cognitive that we think through, well, I'm inventing this, I'm coming up with this. It's what Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the great romantic poet and philosopher called fancy, that we just kind of rearrange things to come up with something different, but really it's made of materials that were already there. That is different than the imaginal, as Corbin 
it describes it. And the imaginal is actually a capacity to perceive through the human organ of the imagination, something that is real, but not literal and not physical or material. It's an internal realm that is composed of archetypes and symbols and figures that we can come into a participatory relationship with. And Corbin's idea of the imaginal is very much influenced by a number of Sufi mystics. That's his lineage who delineated this realm of the mundus imaginalis, the, the world of the imagination that we can access and participate in through, to use Jung's term, through the practice of active imagination. And that was the practice that Jung was using for his Red Book experiences. And it's, it's one of those practices that at first seems maybe intimidating, but it's really quite easy if you engage with it. And I've brought this practice to students and workshop participants, and I'm always amazed how ready the psyche is to just tap into this world of imagination. Um, active imagination is simply holding an image or even an emotion in your conscious awareness and bracketing out that impulse to judge or critique or get the mind involved. It's, it's like meditation in that way. But instead of meditating on emptiness or releasing images and thoughts, we meditate on image. And in that focus, in that focused place, what inherently unfolds, images want to move. It's the nature of psyche to move. It won't stay still. If you look at a painting, for example, and then you close your eyes and you hold the image of that painting in your conscious awareness, before long, that image of the painting is going to start to move and start to shift. It's the nature of psyche to, to be animated, anima, right? That soul animates. And that's what happens with active imagination. And if you work with it in a disciplined way, you can do what Jung did, which is actually to step across the threshold and enter into the drama yourself to be a participant in that inner imaginal world. And this is something as well that James Hillman speaks about. I think that if you bring together thinkers such as Corbin and Hillman, Jung, and Tolkien in a different way, who had his own notion of what he called fairy, which is also a kind of imaginal realm. If you put them all together, you start to get a picture of this realm. And I don't think any of them describe it in a way that you can't, you can't collapse, say, Jung's definition of the collective unconscious with Corbin's definition of the mundus imaginalis and collapse that into... Tolkien's notion of fairy. But by looking at each one, you get a parallax view on something that we all have the potential to be in relationship with, this, this inner infinite world that is uh, archetypally patterned, but also it's not a pure access to the archetypes. It's more like a co-creative participatory relationship with them. And that last layer in terms of inaction or participation is um, 
a, a philosophical piece that I've brought in since in a way to try and reconcile all these other views on on the Mundus Imaginalis. You mean the co-creative um, piece? The co-creative participatory piece drawing on um, I'm, I've been especially inspired by the work of Jorge Ferrer, who's brought mm -hmm. that into transpersonal theory and um, participatory spirituality, study of religion. And I think it's just as applicable in terms of understanding how the human imagination co-creates with the archetypes. It's not a new idea. It's just um, bringing in specific language uh, that maybe wasn't being used exactly in that way by, say, Corban or Hillman. Well, we are going to talk about resurrecting the dead in a little bit. Okay, so, <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, yeah, because I actually wrote down co-creative co in action and this participatory aspect. So speaking of, I mean, somebody who is featured in our conversation, Carl Jung, uh, of course, Jung holds a particular significance in my life. I, I know you too. Um, and would you talk about part of his role in your life and you're you're treading in those waters so i and maybe i'm loading you up too much but maybe you can talk a little bit about the archetype uh, so we can maybe define that term and then you can dig into who young is and was and how he is present in your life still absolutely so in terms of the definition of archetype i will resist giving an entire lecture on this <laughs> um but when I use the term archetype, I use it in a broader sense than Jung used it. And that's in part informed by my own work in the discipline of archetypal astrology, which draws on a lineage of archetypes that stretches from Plato through Aristotle all the way to Jung, James Hillman, and beyond. And so when I use the term archetype, I mean it philosophically in the way that Plato meant it, and I mean it psychologically in the way that Jung meant it. Um, and now this is too, too much of a binary in terms of either of them. So I'm almost going to give a caricature of the differences Great. in order to illustrate a point, but then we'll break that down. With Plato, his idea of archetypes he called them the eternal forms or ideas form with a capital f or idea with a capital i and for him these forms or ideas were the universal principles that informed the particulars of the world but they dwelt in this transcendent heavenly realm they were kind of eternal divine uh, archetypal ideas and they participate in the world around us, but they're beyond that world. And they have a, a sacred quality to them. Again, a transcendent quality. And the, if we kind of skip the whole philosophical history in between and arrive at Jung, Jung rediscovered those archetypal principles within the human psyche and recognized that they were, were patterns of the human psyche that uh, express themselves through us. And many of Jung's archetypes he describes as archetypal figures, not all of them, um, but he speaks of the great mother or the divine child or the mm. shadow or the wise old man. These are really familiar terms in terms of, of psychological archetypal figures. But he also spoke of 
archetypes in terms of number or form, the mandala, the cross, the spiral. So they're not just figures for him. The most important thing with Jung was for much of his career, he saw these as subjective to the human psyche. They didn't necessarily have a bearing on the world outside. And that's because he was committed to this Kantian perspective that said, well, we can't know beyond our own subjective experience. And for Jung, it was synchronicity that really broke down that barrier where he came to recognize that it, the archetypes are not just informing the human psyche, they're informing the cosmos itself. And when we see a synchronicity and recognize the archetypal core of meaning running through that meaningful coincidence between an inner event and an outer event, the archetypes must be informing the world itself. And that actually breaks down the barriers around the idea of the human psyche and that maybe psyche mm -hmm. itself is saturating the cosmos. Um, so when I speak about archetypes, I'm invoking all of that, an idea of archetypes as transcendent primordial forms and something that is a part of the human psyche and something that's imminent to the world itself. Um, so it's a complex definition of archetypes, but one that when, when I'm using it is really just referring to the universal principles that inform the world around us, the world within us, um, both in a transcendent and imminent manner. So hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> it does. It, it, it's an interesting definition. And then it kind of goes against some of the... I've always liked Jungian theory because I, at least my direct association is that Jungian theory offers up a kind of um, universal open system. You know, one of the things, uh, like it's juxtaposed with a Freudian reductive system where you're kind of in an enclosed, everything can be related to your history and there's nothing universal. So I really like the definition and it's it's challenging, I guess, because um, I, I bristle at, this is going to be my next question, actually. I bristle at a reductive materialist lens and, and it, it, it feels like that. Jung's, uh, well, I just mean that if we're restricting something to the human psyche, then we're not opening it to the universal that we participate in. And it, it gets against uh, this idea that something, our conscious emana a consciousness emanates from within us versus we're participating in consciousness. So, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think I have a similar bristling. And <laughs> and Jung himself evolved through his yeah. lifetime. And I think that's an important thing to know about Jung, that you know some scholars will say, well, Jung was inconsistent in what he was yeah, yeah. writing. But... As uh, Sanu Shamdasani, who's the, the editor of the Red Book, the Black Books, has said, he's not inconsistent. He He's evolving he through evolves. time. Yeah. And so should we all as scholars, Amen. I hope. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we, if we look to the writings of later Jung, and especially around um, his work on synchronicity, and then read into that his earlier work, then... Um, I think we get that more comprehensive yeah. connection between the psyche and the cosmos that it sounds like both of us are um, not just looking for, but probably experiencing in the world. Well, and that's that's part of what sets this next question up is that you've, 
we I've heard you say it and you've certainly referenced it and I've certainly said it around modern materialism and reductionism. And I, I, I want to set that up a little bit because earlier you were talking about a worldview and and partially I think one of the things that your work is really doing is offering up through these modern openings or portals, you know, it's a weird term, but let's use it. So in both these works where, where the, the Lord of the Rings and the Red Book are these kind of portals that present an other world beneath this world, I, I want to talk about what your thoughts are regarding modern materialism and reductionism and how your study of the imagination and also astrology and even psychedelics influences the ways in which you critique this modern system. And I, I kind of want to take on culture a little bit here. So let's see where we go. Sounds good. Well, my own understanding of an evolution of worldviews has been honestly hugely informed by the work of my dad, Rick Tarnas, mm. and his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, yeah. because he traces out in that work uh, an evolution of worldviews from the ancient Greek, classical, um, early Christian, medieval, Renaissance, early modern you know, through the scientific revolution, the reformation, uh, all the way up to the postmodern. And one of the things that that work makes really clear is that no worldview is superior to another. When you actually allow yourself to enter into the experience of another worldview, say, for example, Owen Barfield does this beautifully. He's another person who philosopher traces the evolution of worldviews. And Bar Barfield was one of the in Oxford Inklings with J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and others. And he just brings you into the experience in one of his books of what it would be like to experience the world um, as someone in medieval Europe. Mm. And that... When you're looking up at the sky, for example, you are not seeing empty space. The space wasn't even a word that was used at the time. And what instead you see are nested crystalline spheres that are holding the planets in their orbits. And that the, the rays of the sun are actually, uh, they, it, it's, beaming down almost like liquid mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. um, suffused with meaning and uh, actual influence. All of the planets are um, beaming these rays of influence and that mm -hmm. in some way your worldview shapes what you see of the world. And that's exactly the same within a modern worldview that what you see is shaped by that particular worldview and that you actually cannot take in something that's beyond your paradigm unless you personally go through a paradigm shift or the culture is going through a larger paradigm shift. I think we're living in one of those tenuous, uncomfortable, very destructive feeling moments where a worldview is dying and a new worldview is struggling to be born. And there are individuals who are living in both worldviews simultaneously. And Jung certainly was such an individual. 
um, I think many of the people we've been speaking about today already are such individuals where I, and I think probably you and I know exactly what it's like to live in the modern disenchanted worldview. It's pretty easy to slip into that uh, rationalist uh, reductionist perspective that um, mostly recognizes the material to be what's real, what's objective, but we can simultaneously look through another lens that is able to perceive, say, the archetypal, the ensouled um, within that. And being able to switch back and forth, it's like worldview code switching. <laughs> and uh, it's a very uncomfortable and very exciting place to be in, to live between worldviews. Um, and so the in terms of the modern worldview that is so oriented toward the human being being the only center of meaning and purpose and intelligence and then you know, the rest of the world is is essentially soulless matter um mm. that again that is a perspective that has allowed a great level of autonomy to be forged by the human being and again this is drawing on um rick Tarnas's work it's allowed a self to emerge. And he's inspired by Charles Taylor, for example, who, mm. who speaks about that forging of the self. Um, and that's been the great gift. And I think it's quite interesting that when we forge that sense of an individual self who is autonomous and separate from the world, one of the great gifts that we gain um, is a sense not only of individuality but of responsibility and as we are now entering a period of major ecological crisis and having to reconcile with the fact that it is human caused that we are on this threshold of the anthropocene a new mm. geological era named after that modern human being that's part of a larger trajectory that we can't even i think fully fathom yet because we're in the unfolding of that story but it's so it's not necessarily even i think it can be very easy to dismiss that modern worldview as a mistake as something where we just went wrong and mm -hmm. of course there were many many things about the modern perspective you know especially coming out of um, the Euro-American Euro Western tradition that is extremely destructive and extremely problematic. So I'm not um, in any way excusing that, but I'm speaking to it in the sense of a larger story unfolding that we don't know what the ending is going to be. Well, in some ways there is no ending, but we don't know what the next chapters will bring. But I think it's not so much just a terrible error, but something that we as a human species and we as an earth community are being forged against and within. Um, it kind of reminds me of in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, where at the beginning, uh, Frodo is speaking about the situation he's in, that he doesn't want to have to bear the ring. He says, why did this have to happen in my time? and kind of regretting 
that experience. And I, I know I certainly will feel that way many times of, you know, why, why did we all have to be born into this time of so much destruction and loss Mm -hmm. ecologically, but also interculturally and, um, you know, how much suffering humans, uh, inflict upon each other and uh, just to take what Gandalf's response to Frodo was which is that um, you know so do all who are born in such times but all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us and so we are part of this story where the modern worldview is really having to come up and face its shadow to use that that Jungian term and in facing its shadow, there is a destruction of the self that takes place, but also a greater possibility of integration and um, becoming part of a larger whole. And I think that's what what the modern worldview is on the precipice of right now. I have so many questions. I've, I've, I've written, I'm trying to like star and circle and underline and try to figure out some kind of code way to communicate to myself. Well, let's uh, go back on anything that would be yeah, helpful. No, I, yeah, we will. I, I have to. Um, the first is a comment about something Jeffrey Kripal said that I really love so much, which is not that the worldview is, is wrong. It's that it's incomplete. And I really mm-hmm. think that's a humble way of looking at it, which it it, to address the enantiodromia that you're talking about, where one goes and flips over to the other and just says, well, this thing is horrible and it's wrong and we've messed up. I, I don't, I, I see the flaws, but also how can we find a way to hold these two things simultaneously that we we do want to resurrect what um, needs to be resurrected and let die what needs to die, but not throw it all out. And so I, I think that's a really important note that you make. Um, so there's, so, <laughs> Um, you're talking about this change in age and we, we hear about the lot of Aquarian age and kind of the shifting of a, of a, of a perspective or a worldview. I wonder if you could draw from the well of astrology for a second and just give one of those lectures. Where does astrology come into this? And I just, you know, I want to advocate on behalf of people who are interested in astrology because it's got this um, a real misunderstanding of what uh, what it means. So, could you enlighten folks listening and myself included? Because I'm I'm one of those people who needs help understanding. Absolutely, and you know, Jung was someone who started exploring astrology fairly early on. We know at least by 1911 he was looking into it. Maybe even as early as 1908. And the reason he was interested in astrology was because uh, astrology is very much connected to myth and to archetypes. And he felt like it would be a way to understand the human psyche. And so it was worth looking into. Just as later on, he uh, delved so deeply into alchemy. He called Mm -hmm. alchemy the little sister of astrology. And by the end of his career, he was using astrology with nearly all of his patients. So uh, for those who are you know, very oriented within Jungian psychology, bringing astrology in is not so far away from exactly what Jung himself was doing. Right. And now there 
are many astrologies. I think it's a more accurate way to say that. There are many branches of astrology. There are countless lineages of astrology coming from all around the world. The particular branch that I work within is called archetypal astrology, and it comes out of the Western lineage, but is really focused on looking primarily at the positions of the planets relative to each other and relative to the Earth's position. And astrologers have come to recognize that associated with each one of the planets is a particular archetype. And the way I was describing it before, this an archetypal principle that mm. when we look at two or more planets in combination, um, we see that expressed through individual natal charts or birth charts. So the, the personality, the lives, the relationships of individuals. But what's a more convincing body of evidence is uh, what are called world transits. When we look at the positions of the planets relative to each other throughout history, and you know how history has, you know, different uh, patterns and rhythms. And we recognize, you know, this era reminds me of that one. Or there's a continuation of this theme that's been underground for many years and suddenly it's back again. Uh, a really obvious one is, you know, look at the 1960s. The 1960s just stands out in terms of a major period of revolutionary cultural artistic social political upheaval i think most people certainly all historians would agree there was something about the 60s and if we look to other periods in history say the french revolution there's a similar quality to that time and if you look at the positions of particularly the outer planets, because they move very slowly, so they come into alignment um, for a very long period of time, it happens that both in the 1960s and the French Revolution and several revolutionary periods in between, two planets were in alignment, the planet Uranus and the planet Pluto. And astrologers have come to recognize that the archetype associated with Uranus is one of rebellion, change, awakening, liberation, the trickster, the, um, the innovator. It's related to technology, what's new, what's different, what's cutting edge, what's exciting, unexpected, um, sudden. And Pluto relates to the depths, to transformation, intensities, extremes. It's, it's kind of like the... Uh, the intensity of an erupting volcano. It's the like the death rebirth mystery, um, the phoenix that dies into the flames and is reborn from the ashes. It, um, it intensifies and pushes to extremes, whatever it touches. So you bring these two very powerful eruptive energies together and you would expect to see a period of um, deeply empowered awakening uh, liberation, change, revolution, rebellion. And that is exactly what we see historically in the 1960s and the 1790s when the French Revolution happened. And you can trace that through many different periods in history and see these eruptions. The most recent alignment of those two planets, Uranus and Pluto, took place from 2007 to 2020. And people who studied this most recent decade 
recognized that so many different themes that had come up really prominently in the 60s from the ecological movement to women's rights and feminism to uh, civil rights and black power movement, indigenous rights and so forth, Mm. um, gay rights all erupted in that time. And then beginning right around 2007, but especially through this last decade, erupted once more, whether that's um, Me Too and the women's movement, the gender equality movement, um, trans rights, Black Lives Matter, um, looking certainly at the ecological movement at a whole new level, um, and many other social um, transformations and upheavals. Um, You have the psychedelic revolution in the 60s, you have the psychedelic renaissance in this last decade. So there's all these parallels. Now that's just one combination of two planets. There's 10 planets and they all keep moving. So we can look at this through many other different periods. Another one that's really compelling is when keep one planet the same, Pluto, instead of Uranus, we bring in Saturn. Saturn has more to do archetypally with pain, loss, suffering, death, endings, contraction, constriction, what would you expect to see when those two come together? Well, looking historically, again, both world wars started under Saturn-Pluto alignments. 9-11 happened under a Saturn-Pluto alignment. The Cold War started under a Saturn-Pluto alignment. The Vietnam War started under a Saturn-Pluto alignment. The AIDS epidemic was began under a Saturn-Pluto alignment. And most recently, COVID-19 happened under a Saturn-Pluto alignment. So it's these periods, again, these are shorter Um, periods they last three four years when it's Saturn and Pluto but there are these massive world-changing highly consequential events from the world wars to 9-11 to the coronavirus pandemic and when you start to see those patterns just at a historical level it builds some really convincing evidence that there might be something here And that's just looking at planets in alignment with each other. That's bracketing out signs and houses and many other things that you often will hear about in relationship to astrology. Um, So for anyone who might be skeptical, which, you know, is an important thing to be, especially in relationship to something like astrology, if you simply look at that historical evidence, it starts to become very convincing. Then you can apply the same techniques to understanding an individual's birth chart, where the planets were when they were born, and studying biography through that lens, studying one's own life and one's relationships through that lens, and the evidence continues to build. Um, And then where it gets very, very interesting is when you layer in what are called personal transits, and that's how the world transits relate to each of our natal charts. And so just as the world is going through these major rhythms, Mm -hmm. so do each one of our lives. And that's how we can understand, why was that period so difficult for me? Or why did I have the most amazing creative breakthrough at that time? Or why did I fall in love so deeply in this way and it turned out to be a complete delusion? Or, you know, countless other examples we can see that reflected in our personal transits, that it's not just the birth chart that is giving um, a definition to our lives. It's, again, this unfolding pattern and our relationship to 
the planets. And so this is an example on an ongoing collective scale of what Jung called synchronicity. Um, rather than it being sudden and happenstance though, it's continuously ongoing and we can study it. We can follow those patterns. Um, so that's why I study astrology and well, find it very compelling. <laughs> push on, thank you. God, um, thank you so much. And the thing that I want to push on is that there, what's fascinating about the term synchronicity and what we're talking about is causality. And how, how does that, how is the a causal aspect of synchronicity reconciled with what we're talking about is that that thing over there has an effect right here yeah say more about that so the metaphor that uh, i and a lot of other archetypal astrologers will use is that if you think of the positions of the planets as being like the hands of a clock if i look at a clock and it says that it's 2 45 p.m then that clock isn't causing it to be 2.45 p.m. It's correlating with that. It's reflecting that. And it's the same idea when it comes to understanding the movements of the planets in astrology. They're indicating the quality of time. And so we can read them like we re would read a complex clock and that they are not physically hmm. causing it to all these events to unfold rather it seems to point to a deeper cosmic orchestration that is archetypally informed at that large solar system level and maybe beyond but it's harder to track at those cycles yeah, yeah. and the not just what's happening on earth in terms of world events but what's happening even in the innermost reaches of our of our being our interior psychic domain um, and so in terms of causal versus a causal, I think we can bring back in the, the ancient forms of causality that Aristotle spoke about, because the modern worldview really just looks at two forms of causality, material causality, does this thing exist? And efficient <laughs> causality, does this thing hit this thing and it moves? <laughs> Um, which is extremely valuable when you're working with science, technology. Totally. Um, but Aristotle spoke of two other forms of causality, formal and final causality. And that's, I think, what we're seeing at work in astrology, that the archetypes themselves are the formal and final cause of not only the events we're seeing unfold, but the positions of the planets themselves. And that there's that archetypal thread running through both events in the same way that Jung recognized in terms of a synchronicity. When Jung described synchronicity as a-causal, I think he meant it in terms of a-causal when it comes to material or efficient cause. But because part of the definition of synchronicity is that they share an archetypal core of meaning, the two or more events, that implies that the archetype is the formal cause. And again, I think that's what we're seeing in terms of these astrological correlations. Um, so it it pushes us to expand our idea of what we mean. Well, yeah, I certainly feel that way right now. I mean, I'm challenged in all <laughs> kinds of ways. I, I have to quote this forever, deeper cosmic orchestration and mm. I, it, it does, it, it did push me uh, where my mind went was into an image of resonating uh, guitar strings. You know, yeah. this, um, 
this resonance and getting into maybe even a quantum because we're for anybody that's getting into philosophy we're talking about a deterministic closed materialistic system versus something that's subjected to uh, we could say vibration and what string theory gets into and so there's there's a really uh, I'm totally impressed by the way you answered that I think that was an incredibly elegant answer and it's helped expand me quite a lot so thanks for that you're welcome. Uh, deep. So back into what I was, any other thought on that, by the way, because that seems like mm. it's deep and wide. Yeah, the I'm, the musical metaphor, I think, is a really apt one. There's yeah. a reason the ancients called it the music of the spheres. Yeah. And that that sense of a, a vibration. And I know there are individuals who have been working to reconcile what we understand of quantum physics with synchronicity, for example, yeah. I think that, and I've, I've tried to look into that as much as I can. Um, I am not a quantum physicist. It's it deep fast. Um, I know. It, it's very, very complex material. Yeah. I'm never going to be in a lab seeing it unfold myself. And that, that for me is a barrier in being able to integrate that fully. But what I recognize is that we don't live in a worldview that has integrated quantum physics at all. <laughs> oh yeah, say more of that, that's great, absolutely. Well, I, in some ways, how can we? Right. <laughs> because like, we've barely, you know, we've integrated living in a Newtonian Cartesian worldview totally. because it works at the scale that we operate at. And can image, we are not, yeah. Exactly, we can see it, we can imagine it. Um, it is very hard to live within a quantum worldview <laughs> and maybe our descendants one way, one day will be able to do that, which is amazing to yeah. think about. Yeah. Um, I will not be able to get that far. I've gotten to the places that I've gotten to um, that I feel comfortable with. And hopefully I'll keep um, expanding my own worldview over the course of my lifetime. But uh, when we know that there is evidence, scientific evidence, which meets the criteria of what the modern worldview is looking for, that we cannot fully live or integrate, that's interesting to mm. me. Those anomalies are interesting because mm. they're all pointing toward what is yet to come and what we may be living within someday. So it could be that however long from now individuals can live within a worldview and therefore a world where they can see the interaction of the archetypal and the quantum and consciousness and matter in a way that we just can't perceive at this point mm -hmm. um for myself and trying to reconcile those fields of, of quantum physics and synchronicity it becomes reductionistic yeah of trying to explain one thing away with another and that's, I think, just because I can't get there yet. Mm. And that's fine. Um, but it's so exciting to think someone could not in a, we've reconciled it and it falls back into our neat little mm -hmm. modern scientific categories, but we've reconciled it. And science itself has radically changed to include an ensouled archetypal perspective because it had to. That I find really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. 
okay, that's fantastic. Um, thank you for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's so much more there, and I. Uh, okay, maybe I'll I'll come back to that in a little bit because it, it, there's that's so rich. Mm -hmm. um, Kripal and I talked a lot about that. He's been on the show quite a number of times, and we we chat about feeling like. Um, being more and more comfortable with the the uncertainty uh and and something maybe this stirs something up we we just led that workshop at eslin and we were talking about music and my co-collaborator on the project is a is a classically trained pianist and he's also a, a Jungian analyst and he's talking about the myth of orpheus and 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 th this idea that music is what takes one into the underworld and it's it's something, there is something quantum and there is something vibrational and there is something resonant. We now use music as an anxiety reducer and to help us deal with silence in an elevator, but not chanting in a cave while fasting and engaging in this uh, imaginous, you know, kind of relationship with the imaginal. So, uh, I, okay, I want to, I want to jump into a couple of stories. You said one of the other threads that was really interesting is that you started to reference some of the stories from the Lord of the Rings. And in particular, it's this Christ hero, you know, red book dynamic. And you've touched on the allegory of Christ and other heroic narratives, post-heroic narratives that you talk about with Jung. Um, so in this context, and certainly when we talk about hero, it's Joseph Campbell's not far away. So would you kind of circle around this idea of heroic narratives, post-heroic narratives, Joseph Campbell, I'll toss that out there and see where you go. Absolutely. Well, when we think of the hero as an archetypal figure, um, which is very much an expression of, you could say, the solar archetype, the solar archetype that symbolizes the individual being autonomous, uh, the self, that sense of who we are, um, that's that's one archety archetypal principle among many, but just like the sun, when it's shining in the sky, it's the only light that's visible. And therefore the heroic narrative tends to be so bright that we don't see the many other narratives, the many other archetypal figures that there are. And what we see on the one hand in Jung's Red Book, the reason many scholars have called it a post-heroic work, first of all, because it near the beginning of the Red Book begins with this dream of the murder of the hero, yeah. where he, um, he participates in murdering the hero Siegfried, who's kind of a classical hero of the, the Nordic Germanic imagination. And so when that hero is slain or the sun goes down and descends into the night, then we're in a different realm. We're in the night realm. We're in the, the world of the many, what's visible during the nighttime, the lunar hours when we can see the many stars. Um, and so Jung's journey through, you could mm -hmm. say, through the imaginal realm in the Red Book is one of encountering the many other figures beyond that one bright light of the hero. And the way that we see this in Tolkien that I've always liked to emphasize is that while there are a number of figures in Tolkien's stories who can be understood in that solar heroic way, um, Aragorn is a good example, or 
um, you know, some try and understand Frodo in that way. You can see it in some of his earlier stories in the Silmarillion. That idea breaks down if you look closely at them, because the story, particularly of the Lord of the Rings, what's the title of the first book? It's the Fellowship of the Ring. Mm. And that our so-called hero or main character, Frodo, is never alone. He goes, he first departs with three other hobbits. His entire trajectory, um, he's accompanied by his closest friend, Samwise Gamgee. They're always in a pair. Aragorn, who's the other kind of most heroic figure, uh, likewise relies on on his friends, on his companions who are beloved to him and he is beloved to them. The entire story is one of companionship and collaboration and friendship and that no part of that story would be possible to see through without those relationships. And so I see it also as a post-heroic narrative in the sense that it isn't just the story of one solar individual. It's the story of you could say a constellation of stars who all support each other and um, can only achieve their great works by leaning on each other, by failing, mm -hmm. by um, actually allowing the mistakes, the, the failings, the, uh, the losses to become a part of the, the great transformation and ultimate success of the story. Um, so Jung's Red Book and Tolkien's, they're different in so many ways, even though I love drawing out the parallels, it's important to remember they are two totally different books yeah. and we learn a lot from those differences. Um, but in this way, I think they can both be understood as a different kind of story than the one that Joseph Campbell identified in The Hero's Journey, which is a solar journey. And it, what's remarkable that Campbell was able to recognize is this is a story that's being told in countless cultures all around the world through time. Why is that? Well, it it can't simply be reduced to the um, the astronomical phenomena, although we do all share in common. We see the sunrise, we see it ride to noon in that heroic way, and we see it set. Um, Yes, there's that, but it's more than that. It's that that's an archetypal principle within each one of us and within our cultures that's lived through through the centuries, through the millennia. Um, and that's how he was able to identify the hero's journey and, and the hero myth. Um, but there's so many other journeys and myths and archetypal principles that we can also find all around the world. Um, whether that's the Venusian love story or um, you know, the lunar story of, of relationship and family and home and connection and fellowship or, or many, many others. Um, so we can take that same methodology that Joseph Campbell used to identify the solar hero myth and, and find so many others as well. Well, it's a setup into this next question, which is the feminine. And mm. the, the something neglected in a lot of times, but you you were. Uh, I love the way you treated this in your in your dissertation. Obviously, you've got a keen interest in the feminine figures, and Eowyn is one of the figures in Tolkien's work that you spoke about, and and really noted her in important ways. So, could you discuss the role of the feminine, not just in these stories, but in broader contexts of myth and psychology and spirituality and so on and so forth? 
Yeah, there's, you know, in terms of the feminine, um, and we're in this really interesting period right now where so much is being called into question around, well, what is masculine? What is feminine? And I do think that we can understand an archetypal feminine and an archetypal masculine, or you could say a divine feminine and a divine masculine. But the way that I really like to approach this is through a more complex archetypal lens. And the reason I like to speak about Eowyn um, as a figure from Tolkien stories is because she's a great example of, of a solar feminine woman. And what I mean by that is she takes on often more than the male characters, this solar heroic role um, where she goes into battle seeking glory, seeking fame and seeking Mm -hmm. death as well. And that's death and the hero are very intimately connected. Um, Just as again, the sun has to die. The sun has to go down each evening into the West. Um, And so that's very much her journey of going out as that solar hero to encounter um to encounter her fate and within the story what's what's beautiful is her her femininity her role as a woman is an essential part of accomplishing that solar heroic goal Mm. because when she encounters uh the the lord of the nazgul the witch king this terrifying embodiment of evil that everyone is absolutely um, in utter fear of. And when she encounters him, he repeats to her a prophecy that was said many, many years before that uh, no man can kill him. And if you've read Tolkien, you know that all human beings, as is the case in many of our languages, the word for human is simply reduced to man Mm -hmm. we have men and elves we have man and god we have you know all the different ways we use man to refer to um all of humanity i'm noticing it's happening less and less these days Mm -hmm. but it you know up until fairly recently most books you would read would still refer to man or mankind to refer to all of humanity and so um this lord of the nazgul is holding this belief that no man meaning no mortal can kill him and so she reveals herself saying you you do not look on a man but you look upon the face of a woman and she's then able to destroy him um and is that because of the prophecy or because he's so utterly shocked by who she is but what's um what's amazing about that is that she has been constrained her whole life by these patriarchal values that put her in her place as a woman where she can't be a shield maiden, where she can't, you know, it's her job to stay home and uh, take care of her uncle and all of this. And she defies all of that. But in the end, it's actually that very language that protects her, that allows to see her destiny through as a woman, um, as this solar figure. And, um, there's this beautiful conjunctio with her story that um, she ends up falling in love with Faramir, who's very much an expression of the lunar masculine. Mm. He's very nurturing. 
He's very caring. He, yes, he's, he's a warrior, but that's not where his heart is. Where his heart is, is intending and nurturing and um, kind of honoring the beauty of home, of his homeland. And so they come together as this wonderful solar lunar conjunctio that subverts many of the um, kind of more classically told traditional stories of the solar masculine and the lunar feminine. Um, and what I love about that, that's within that one particular story, but we can see this in so many different examples in the world, is we can recognize that the feminine is not only lunar, nurturing, caring, mm. uh, relational, emotional, or beautiful in a Venusian way, um, but also can be that solar hero, can be an individual, can be have a name for herself, can can be a Martian warrior, can be a Saturnian authority, and all of these different archetypal principles. And so I like to see the archetypal feminine and the archetypal masculine as being these kind of multifaceted gems of um, archetypal expression that open them up into so many other ways of being, um, which can be quite liberating. And I think introducing some of that language into the Jungian discourse, where it can get a little bit confusing sometimes, where Jung talks about the archetypal feminine and the archetypal masculine, but then he also talks about men and women as mm -hmm. feminine and masculine. And then you have to say, well, I don't mean that one, I mean that one, I don't mean that one, I mean that one. Um, and if we introduce other language, such as lunar and solar, let alone the rest of the pantheon, um, we can liberate those ideas without societal constructions of what they may or may not mean. Um, I've been very inspired in this idea by um, a scholar and a, a psychoanalyst named Howard Tisch, who uh, wrote a book called Solar Light, Lunar Light. And um, he doesn't apply it astrologically. He applies it purely psychologically in his practice. And it's um, a wonderful book, a slim little book. And um, yeah, so that's, that's where a lot of these ideas initially stemmed from. Uh, thank you. I'm totally going to get the book. <laughs> if you move that into social, you mentioned patriarchy and what's happening currently socially. What do you see regarding the changes in masculinity and femininity? Any comment whatsoever? I think that we're in, just as before we were talking about the being in a time between worldviews, we're in a time where we're very importantly questioning these definitions and um, of what is masculine, what is feminine. And in that questioning, there's a wonderful deconstruction that's taking place of language, of cultural expectations and so forth. Mm. Um, but I don't know, I think we're very much in process with that. And I don't totally know what will emerge or where that's going. And so I'm, I'm interested, I'm listening. Um, I bring forward, you know, this piece that I just shared on the solar and the lunar um, to maybe add a little bit into the conversation. But I think that that's a really important area to keep paying attention to and working in and, and seeing what emerges um, and not being dogmatic about it. Yeah. Good. 
Yeah, we need some help. Uh, I notice every time I teach that masculine feminine archetype, I have to give a five minute disclaimer just so people's anxieties and complexes around where they're defended hopefully it doesn't show up. Of course it does. But but I do find uh, I do find that there's an opportunity. I like these distinctions of of recognizing that one can be a, a solar masculine figure, great, or a lunar feminine figure, great, or all the above and interwoven and intermixed and and holding together the the you know kind of physiology or biology and also the cultural dynamics that are much more fluid and that don't have to be contained by our biology. And, and that kind of yin and yang dynamic, when we start not falling into the one part and to sacrifice the other, I think is very liberating. So I'm glad you're taking that on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It is liberating. Yeah, it is. Uh, even, even as a kind of androgynous male figure, I mean, I certainly relate with a lot of traditionally masculine elements, but in so many ways, I'm, I have a lot of feminine lunar aspects. I mean, I'm a clinician and a therapist and, you know, a nurturer in a lot of ways, but um, it, it, to me, I just never had any issue expressing some of those um, taboos in a lot of ways, you know, being able to be feminine as a, as a male and uh, and so I I hope more people are talking actively about being able to embrace their androgyny and and be a both andist as opposed to an either orist you know absolutely uh, any yeah. comments at all before I go to the next thing oh please go to the next one okay <laughs> good um, so we talked earlier about communing with the dead and Jung spoke about bringing the dead into modern times and how do you interpret this in the context of engaging with ancient texts and philosophies and religions? in our contemporary perspective? It's a good question. I just had a wonderful class with my students a few weeks ago where we delved into that question of what, who are the dead? What does Jung mean by that in the Red Book when he has his encounters with the dead? The timing was, was kind of perfect that we had this class. It by chance landed um, the day after Dia de los Muertos. So it it was very much in the field. And I think that, you know, we were speaking earlier about this definition of the imaginal realm, the mundus imaginalis, what Tolkien calls fairy, the collective unconscious. And another term that we can put in there that again, not an exact equation, but another perspective on this domain is the land of the dead. And especially when we think about Jung's idea of the collective unconscious, certainly a great region of the collective unconscious is all that has come before. What James Hillman calls the weight of human history. And I would add to that, not just the weight of human history, but the weight of earthly history, cosmic history, yeah. all that has come before, um, we can find in the collective unconscious. And so in that way, we're always being informed by the dead. We are living the dead. Um, and to, to honor that, to recognize that, I think helps us to live more fully. Part of what Jung is speaking about in the Red Book with the dead he encounters, who are the restless, unredeemed dead, and we have a... Um, 
a host of the restless unredeemed dead in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings as well. Really interesting parallels between those two. And remember that the times they're writing in, they're both informed by um, particularly the slaughter of World War One. So the dead are all around them at that mm -hmm. time and informing them. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, I think, shaping the context in which they're bringing this forward just as relevant in our time today to be sure um, but to be in that state the the unredeemed the restless dead um, they're speaking about the dead who weren't able to live fully whether their lives were cut off too soon or um, whether they were living within a worldview where they couldn't um, inhabit the fullness of their being. And so we can't fully die if we don't fully live. Um, and so I think that's some of working with the dead too, is recognizing, are we part of the dead right now as we're living? Or are we living fully? Are we living to our fullest capacity um, in each moment? And that's a constant practice. I think it's something we always yeah. have to remind ourselves of because especially now it's so easy to be distracted by pretty much everything and sometimes i'll bring myself out of a place of you know having gotten lost online and thinking was i really living mm -hmm. just then would would that moment in my life become part of this restless and unredeemed dead if uh if i weren't able to find some way to bring that back into my living presence um, and of course, that's my own critique on the way that our culture has brought up so many distractions, because there's so much to distract us from right now. We are in such a dire situation in terms of the ecological crisis, all of the political crises going on, um, conflicts and so forth, that there is a lot to distract us from, but then are we really living? And then can we join the community of the dead of all who've come before us in a way where we can go back into the cycle of of life and be part of the cosmos once more are we going to hang on to that unlived life um that that we may be missing in the moment i don't know these are all just questions and things i think about when it comes to that but um that's that's where those themes take me at least right now well a, a question that comes up as you're talking about this is are our myths dead today? What are your thoughts there? Well, it depends what he, what you mean by our <laughs> and what you mean by myths. And then I'll try and answer. Good. So I think there is, I hear, you know, I think of Nietzsche and I think of, okay, God is dead. And in so many ways, there are a, a lot of folks, certainly in the materialistic universe, that that mythology is no longer a living experience. It no longer points to something. We consistently try to find it back then and then evaluate the ontological nature of the figures in our mythologies. And so I, I want to dig into that question, actually, on, on ontology and try to explore, you know, what is the nature of our being? And are these, I mean, my projection onto you is that one of the reasons why you really connected with Tolkien and Jung is that these are, these are living experiences. They're, they're vibrant and they direct you into a living experience yourself. 
and I think this feels pretty foreign to so many folks because, again, back to rationalism and reductionism, the, even the idea of opening to the imaginal realm as something living and autonomous is foreign. And so that's kind of what I mean in a bit of a broader context. Any, anything come up? Yes. Um, so that that's a very helpful kind of contextualization. And I think that when we say, you know, are our myths dead, the hour that you're defining at that point is a kind of modern, postmodern, sure. rational, scientific worldview. Um, and then in terms of myths, I would say they're not dead. But I would say, along with James Hillman, that they are in our diseases. They're uh -huh. in our pathologies. And yes. so they're not dead. They're very, very alive um, and wreaking all kinds of havoc because we are pretending they're dead, because we are pretending <laughs> they don't matter, because we put these words like only, just, merely, and throw them out. Um, and this actually lets me bring in another thinker whose work I've been very focused on lately, who's Dr. Stanislav Grof, mm. who was born into that worldview. He was born in 1931 in Prague, Czechia, Czechoslovakia at the time. And in, early in his life, um, that Czechoslovakia was taken over by Soviet communist regime. So completely anti-religious, anti-spiritual, um, totally oriented toward the scientific, reductionist, rational. And in the midst of that world, uh, he, as a young doctor and scientist, was introduced to the substance LSD-25. Mm -hmm. And in studying individuals and their pathologies, their diseases, where Hillman would say the gods have gone, um, and Jung and Freud yeah. and so forth, um, he, through this very powerful substance, was able to rediscover in that context an entire extraordinary mythic world. Um, and he went on to become one of the co-founders of transpersonal psychology that brings back into psychology a recognition of spirituality within human psychology. And so, I, again, I would say they're not dead. They're being mislabeled <laughs> and being thrown out as, as diseases, pathologies, psychosis, schizophrenia, and so forth. Um, and... And yet, in many individuals, that's not the case. They're just describing experiences that don't fit in that worldview. Or as Jeffrey Kripal says, it's incomplete. Yeah. It's leaving out this vast data, which are the living myths of all times. And I think that, you know, there's certainly something to be said about going back to ancient myths and studying them and finding them living again today. But um, if we have a robust understanding of archetypal principles, we can see myths unfolding that aren't ancient. They're new, they're living, they're right now. And um, so I'm not dismissing going back to old stories because I love old stories, believe me. Mm -hmm. But I'm also acknowledging that through work with active imagination and psychedelics and dream work and um, you know, archetypal astrology and other things that use 
those archetypal, or I don't want to say use, recognize those archetypal principles, we are living in myth. And uh, it's a contemporary myth. It's an unfolding myth. It's doing exactly what Jung said to do, to dream the myth onward. Um, and I think sometimes that can we can lose sight of that um, by thinking we can only rediscover myth through the ancient stories, but realizing that they're they're just as alive today. We just have to know where to look for them. I just got a load of six books by a new friend of mine who's writing in the lineage of Afrofuturism. And I think about that arena as a as not looking back, but looking forward and playing, you know, projecting into the science fiction literature, of course, and everything in the paranormal. And so I really like that thread. And I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, I too like old stories and I really like religions of antiquity, but partially we run the risk of imagining that that stuff back then is the thing that was right. And this stuff right here, right now is not. And right. I, and it's weird thinking about what Jung was doing because essentially he's, he's engaging his imagination in this active way, letting it be active, but also populating it with stories of old, you know, so there's this, I, I think, I think the sci-fi world is, I mean, Philip K. Dick probably has a lot to say about that, you know, in the way that he writes and um, that's, that's, thank you for this, um, this part of the conversation. It really is animating something that's important in my life. Cause I, I speak, I think a lot of people end up kind of using these ideas of reductionism and materialism and, and not really thinking through um, not to kill off the, the present, uh, and participate in that dying for a death back then. <laughs> it's yes. confusing. Yeah. Um, so uh, a, a few more, if you don't mind, if you're you're, you're sure. good to go just a little bit longer. Sure. Um, okay. So on uh, speaking of this, actually, let me jump. Um, Hillman, you talk about Hillman, and he writes that um, naming and personification is important. Speaking about this kind of new attitude, would you talk about the act of naming and personifying uh, narratives and characters in the psyche as this form of co-creation with this imaginal realm? Yeah, it's, you know, the, the language that's always come most easily to me because of my interest in and work with astrology, that naming often takes the form of identifying planetary archetypes, whether that's within art or literature or biography or world history or, you know, any category really. Um, so that's the area that for me personally, that kind of naming really evokes something that I can recognize those archetypal principles. Um, but I think it, it's different for each person. I, I notice a lot of individuals who find that naming to be really helpful around identifying particular archetypal figures or persons within mm. their experiences. And that may be, um, you know, for example, if you're working with a, a complex or an emotional state and you bring that into an experience of active imagination and a figure emerges, um, it with personifying, it's not so much, I'm going to give you a name. It's, what is your name? Can you please tell me? Mm-hmm. And that act of invoking or inviting forward from who is there to identify themselves 
and to see what language is, is most appropriate. I think in Jung's case, a lot of that naming for him, because the question he was wrestling with when he went into the Red Book period was, what is my myth? Because I mm-hmm. feel like I'm not living in the Christian myth. But Christianity for Jung, in a lot of ways, was the birth canal he was struggling through. And so inherently, many of the figures, not all of them, but many of the figures who emerge for him present themselves with names that come out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And where we can really understand what we as individuals are working with, wrestling with, trying to understand, comes about when we work with something like an active imagination or other non-ordinary states of consciousness and the figures themselves identify identify themselves with particular names and if we listen to the the lineages the origins of those names or we don't recognize them at all i think that tells us something um, in terms of what what arenas we're being drawn to work with or what we're wrestling with at this time um, and that's going to be individual for each person. That's part of the the co-creative inaction that we're seeing as we're bringing ourselves to the table at the same time as we're working with archetypal principles that are universal and eternal and beyond us. Is that your, Does that that's help your, answer that's the That's your phrase, right? Co-creative inaction? Um, it's not my phrase. It's one that I've drawn from um, Jorge Ferrer who uses it in his book, Revisioning Transpersonal Theory. And he's applying it to understand different religious and spiritual experiences that people have um, as, as a way to recognize, you know, the different religions, the different mystical experiences, um, and to offer each one an authenticity. Um, because of course, what we see especially with religion is, you know, different religions arguing, fighting, killing each other over what I see, experience, understand, have been taught is right and yours is wrong. And that can go to the level of the most individual mystical experience as well. And so his work has really focused on um, applying this lens of of co-creative inaction to um, understanding our relationship to what he calls the um, the in what is it he calls it the divine mystery um, the indeterminate divine mystery or spiritual mystery and um, that there's no attribute that we can understand of the divine that we aren't in some way co-creating with the divine um, a mm-hmm. metaphor that I've used to try and understand yeah. this because it's, it's hard just with like with quantum physics, it's hard to get an image that helps you with that. Um, the one that came to me when I was trying to understand this was if the indeterminate spiritual mystery is not just a pool of water, but just water completely indefined that you cannot see, there's no edges, there's no light, there's nothing, but it it is water. And then as I reach out and touch that water, that ripple that I see 
and now experience. That is my experience of God. Mm -hmm. And so God is the ripple, mm -hmm. not the water, because we can never fully define the water. And as soon as we try to, we create a ripple. And that's mm -hmm. our inaction yes. of the divine. Um, so that's coming from Jorge Ferrer. He takes the term inaction actually from, um, comes out of, uh, from Francesco Varela and a few other individuals working in cognitive science. Mm. And they talk about inaction as laying down a path in walking, which again is another kind of apt metaphor for this. So um, what you're seeing here is taking a concept from one field, applying it to another, applying it yeah. to another yeah. and so forth. And it ripples. <laughs> and it keeps rippling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. in, in starting to close out and, um, yeah. The, with all of this in mind, especially this co-creation piece, which I'm loving, and I'm going to go down that yellow brick road, um, I, I want to talk about psychedelics and what's happening as you referenced the Renaissance earlier uh, in your family lineage. You've certainly been around this territory for a long time. And not only what you're seeing culturally, but maybe concerns, uh, um, ways in which people can kind of think through their experiences uh, kind of just lob that ball out there and see where we go. Absolutely. I mean, my relationship to the psychedelic renaissance, especially in the last couple of years, has been um, because I'm working right now on writing Stan Groff's biography. So I've been getting to trace this lineage across yeah, over nine decades, which has been really amazing. Um, and so seeing what's been emerging in the last you know decade and a half a lot of it I see is really positive in terms of taking the stigma away from psychedelics, recognizing the healing and heuristic potential of them. Um, and especially when it comes to addressing, uh, you know, issues around PTSD and depression and, and, and many other kind of intractable challenges that can't be medicated away. But these profound transformative experiences can bring one to a place of greater wholeness. Um, so there's a lot that's really positive there. And I also hold psychedelics within a context that I think they are sacred medicines. They are um, something that should be held in ritual, in ceremony. Um, and so I do have some concerns around very strictly holding them within the medical model as the mm. only legal place where they can be, um, where they can be taken without a illegal or stigmatized um, context, and um, and I do have certain concerns around how pharmaceuticals and the capitalist mindset recognizes something powerful and potent and wants to take over that um, and control it. So I definitely have concerns there. Um, and these also are very powerful substances that if used irresponsibly can create a huge amount of damage. I, I don't know if we're in a position like we were 50 years ago when, um, you know, it, they would go completely underground again and everything would be shut down. But that risk is always there. Mm -hmm. And um, so 
holding them within a responsible sacred context I think is very important um and honoring that something can be so uh powerful and transformative but recognizing too that human beings have had relationships with not just plants and substances but many many practices that we have used through the millennia to change our consciousness to expand our consciousness and that this is a human right it's an earthly right um and in that way we can go beyond psychedelics to just simply practices that expand our consciousness coming all the way back to something like active imagination mm -hmm. i have seen active imagination be as transformative for mm -hmm. some individuals um, when when approached in a way that's held with care uh, across time and integrated in the same way that you'd integrate a psychedelic session it can be as transformative um, I mean, clearly look at Jung, <laughs> yeah. but, um, e you know, even today and with individuals who are not Carl Gustav Jung, um, there are so many different methods that one can use to go beyond, um, our everyday state of consciousness. And I think that that is necessary in our time to go beyond this reductionist worldview that we've been talking about throughout our time together um because if i i love that you brought up that quote from jeffrey kripal because if that worldview is only part of the picture we need ways to be able to see the rest of the picture yeah to bring about a more holistic and complete worldview that in some ways lets us see through to all prior worldviews and all coexisting worldviews um, because certainly the modern um, reductionist worldview is not the only one on this earth right now there are many and can we learn to see through the lens of many worldviews at once um, and i think that is what is most likely to help us break out of our fundamentalisms whether it's scientific fundamentalism mm -hmm. religious fundamentalism or any other kind that keeps us rigidly locked within one paradigm um, is that ability to expand our consciousness and enter into other paradigms simultaneously. Um, so I think psychedelics are a really important um, sacred tool within that, but it's one of many. And it's one that um, humans have been working with for a very, very long time. And so I hope we as a culture are able to mature enough to recognize that and to take care of them in the way that um, they deserve and ultimately that we deserve and the world deserves through the transformation they can bring about through us. Well said. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Really. And I, I, I share that, but I, and to add, I think that all the wells you're drawing from position your work to be pretty effective in helping people understand how to relate to what happens when they go into these alternate states, whether with psychedelics or breath work, or as I said earlier, going into a cave to incubate. Mm -hmm. That um, and That's one of the things I really enjoyed about reading your dissertation is just the ways in which you engage the work and how it's really given you a path of uh, practice and presence and also education for you to both learn and teach. 
So mm -hmm. thanks for doing what you do. And thanks for continuing to do what you do. You've blown my mind a couple of times today and I'm really digging that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. And um, I'm just so grateful. I mean, I can't believe you read my dissertation. <laughs> that in itself is, I'm just so honored and, and touched by that. So thank you for everything that you've brought into this conversation and for inviting me here to have this dialogue with you. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's going to be funny when I try to give a title for our conversation because I, I talked to Richard Rohr last time, maybe a couple interviews ago, and he's got a book on the grail mm -hmm. and it's all about masculine, <laughs> masculine initiation. And we probably spent about 30 seconds talking about the grail myth and the rest <laughs> talking about people were like, what happened? So uh, I'm going to try to title it Tolkien and quantum physics and psychedelics and archetypal astrology and Jung but that's going to be too much. So Becca, again, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you as well. I really appreciate it. Control.